Hey, oh writer, oh friend, oh buddy, oh pal of mine. It's been a long time, right? A few weeks. I had to go underground for a little bit and get some work done, but I'm back. And I have for you part two of the amazing Gwen Hernandez interview. I know several hundred of you have listened to it. And so now here is the finale. I hope you enjoy as much as I did. I'm sure you will. I think Gwen kept it real for all of the interview and she's quite insightful and inspiring. Here she is, Gwen Hernandez. I thought that the intro was really great. That's one of the first things I, I, I wrote down. Do you have any um, rec- memories of crafting the intro or, or, or what about about it do you think makes it so compelling? Um, is this a part about like school kids and yoga? <laughs> uh, let's let go straight to it here. I'm thinking. Um, I'm trying to remember if I. Um, oh, I think it's just the one started. Writing tools for teachers, your word was. <laughs> writing tools for teachers, your word processor would be the one who admonishes the color within the lines and always uses green for grass. Scrivener would yeah. be this cool teacher who encourages you to draw your own picture and praises your purple sun. <laughs> I honestly, God, I wish I knew where some of my stuff comes from. I just, I just, it's sort of, um, I just wanted to capture how different, because I, I remember my very first thought when my friend said, you should try Scrivener for it to, I'm like, well, I, I mean, I have Word. It's what else could this, you know, what could another program possibly offer me? I just need to sit down and write, right? And so I just. I was so giddy when I opened it for the first time and saw all of the different things it could do that a lot of which addressed uh, frustrations I was having in word, but hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me to go look for other options because I didn't know they were out there. And um, so I think that was just kind of what it reminded me of was like Scrivener felt like it was letting me unleash my creativity in a new way. And, and not telling me that there's only one way to do it. And so I don't, I couldn't tell you like why that analogy popped into my head, <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. it still really addresses how I feel about it because, you know, I feel like word is very much a, this is the one way to do it. You're stay within these lines. That's it. You know, and Scrivener's like, Oh, you can put it here. You can put it there. You can do it this way or that way or this way. There's like eight ways to do this, you know? And so it's very much about you and your process and, and how, you know, are you a, whether you are a plotter or someone who, um, you know, just sort of writes by the seat of the pants, it, it, it can work for either one of you, and you can have totally different ways of working with it. And, yeah. So I don't remember having a specific thought process. I just sat down and started thinking, well, you know, had to start. I, I think I the intro for uh, you know, I kind of started writing and went back to the intro later because it's always hard to – to write that opening paragraph sometimes, but um, it just popped in my head. <laughs> so. mm. Yeah, no, I just wrote analogy technique, great intro, and I just find it's it's funny that you know um, it's one of the traditional ways of opening, you know, an essay or a book or whatever. You're in opening something, you know, you start with a story, start with an analogy. 
And, you know, that's mm-hmm. it, what you did here. I thought in, in the humor comes out, I thought it worked really well. And the reference that you made about it, and you're not actually telling the whole reference. This is one of my notes on page 20 about how Scribner um, is for people who write uh, plot, or you said write by the seat of their pants, and what you're actually having in the book that I <laughs> marked, um, you write, uh, so you say, I'll read the two paragraphs. Whether you sit down in front of a blank piece of paper with only the spark of an idea or you create an 80-page outline complete with a storyboard and photos of all your characters before you write, Scrivener accommodates you. The aforementioned people who write by the seat of their pants, so-called panthers, might start writing, get to the logical end of a scene, and then start a new document for another scene, whether next in order or not. And I just, you know, LOL at that time. My name is Panthers. <laughs> that that may be kind of a uh, romance world kind of thing, but in in the, the world of romance writers who are, are members of Romance Writers of America, we call ourselves plotters or panthers. Huh. I've never heard that before. Yeah. So, and I think I probably didn't realize at the time that that I just thought all writers used that terminology because um, I was still pretty new to the general world of writing, and I've I've since learned mm-hmm. that outside of my romance community, people haven't quite used that term as frequently. So. Oh, well, I, it's going to be adopted now. I think people who listen to um, Mind the Pros will now call themselves plotters or panthers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and sometimes I'm also a plotter with two Ds, but <laughs> I try to be a little faster. <laughs> and you mentioned a little bit about your, you know, through the book you throw in a little bit of your own process. And one of the things that you say when you're talking about the uh, the working in the binder section or the binder of the mm-hmm. that you know shows where your documents are and how they're divided and organized. You say that when you use it, you set up four folders, one for each of the book parts. And I was curious, what are what are your standard like parts? Oh, okay, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so these there's a couple of people that were key in my understanding of story structure. And um, they take the the traditional three-act structure, um, which is what Aristotle, and they break it up into four parts um, by dividing the middle, the longest act in the middle, into sort of a... um, Basically, you would have, like, the first part would be your setup. Um, So you're just sort of setting the scene, sort of the ordinary world, and there's, you know, there's probably some kind of hook in there that pulls you into their story, um, but their story hasn't really started yet. It's all just the intro. Um, and then so part two is where um, something's happened that's pulled them into this new situation, and they're reacting to it. So things are happening to them, but they're, they're just in reaction mode and still figuring it out. Um, and then part three generally would be where somewhere, you know, at the midpoint, they've sort of made this decision like, okay, I'm, I'm done reacting. I'm going on the attack, if you will. Um, and that sort of leads them into, into the um, climax. And then you have part four is basically, you know, the, all that and the wrap up. So the closing. (laughs) So um, that's how I think of it in my head anyway. And um, 
so yeah, I usually for my fiction, I will usually just put in four folders and start writing. And then when I, okay, I'm in part two now, <laughs> I'll just open up folder two and start adding documents to that one as I go. Cause I'm very, as, as logical as I have always been. And I'm much, I'm very much of a planner. I don't write that way for fiction very well. Um, I try to get certain things figured out in advance. Um, and then I usually end up going back and changing them all, but, but yeah, so that's the four parts that I'm talking about. When you're writing your fiction, um, how do you write? Do you have a schedule? Um, <sighs> I'm trying really hard to have a schedule. Um, I generally speaking try to write in the morning, um, not necessarily early because I'm not really like a morning, morning person. But uh, I find that if I get everything, if I get my writing in before I do things like look at email or get sucked into social media or any of that kind of stuff, I will be a lot more productive and more likely to keep going too. Um, whereas if I try to start later in the day, it seems like things keep coming up and getting in the way or I get distracted. Um, so I'm trying to be really good about writing in the morning and I'm trying to write two to three hours a day. Uh, that varies quite a bit from day to day, whether I actually get that done and when I do it. And <laughs> uh, Working from home is uh, is awesome and also really hard because you're the boss and so you can just tell the boss to shove it and do whatever you want. <laughs> And, um, you know, there's lots of distractions. The kitchen is a distraction. Um, it's summer, so my kids are home. That's a distraction. Uh, you know, the dog needs walked. I have laundry. Just, so the, all those things, um, you know, conspire against me to some degree. So it requires a lot of, a lot more discipline to get work done when I'm at home. And, oh, if I'm really sleepy, my bed's right there upstairs. I can just take a nap. You know, when I worked in an office, I couldn't just take a nap any old time. So... I guess if you worked at Google, you could go sleep in a pod for a little while, but I didn't work at Google, so. Yeah. When you do manage to write in the morning, and do you are, and I know you mentioned you're trying probably two or three hours a day, but when you do write in the morning, are you focused on a word count or is it just the time? Because I know Scrivener has that really cool feature where you can see your word count right at the bottom, plus you can set goals for your project. How do you gauge your productivity? Um, A little of both. Uh, You know, I find that obviously the more hours I put in, uh, the more words I'll get done usually. But, I mean, it can vary. I mean, a three-hour day can be 500 words or, you know, 2,000 words or something like that. So I'm always shooting for both. Um, I really feel better if I've gotten at least 1,000 words down, which you know, when I'm in the flow, I could write three hours and I would I would kill it. I'd, I'd have probably almost 3,000 words, but it doesn't seem to happen more than about once a week. So the rest of the time, I'm just, I, I find that I will use the word count to kind of push me like, oh, I'm only at 450. I could write 50 more words, seriously, you know, and then, and then I'll end up writing 150 more words before I sign off, you know, so that I definitely use it to kind of help spur me to go a little farther. Um, but I... I've kind of given up on setting a specific word count and I've been, 
um, trying to just make sure I put in the time because I find if I'm consistent about putting in the time, then over the course of a week, I will, I will generally get a nice um, output. And, you know, sometimes I'm stuck because I'm still like the book I'm working on now. I'm still in part one. And um, that's where I tend to do a lot of my hashing out of the story before I move on and the, it, it gets a little easier as I once I've done that because I have a little bit more of a roadmap in mind, even though it's still sort of vague. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It's just part one. I tend to sort of I don't know, you know, like the wheels spinning in the mud. I kind of do that for quite a while, trying to really nail down my characters and their motivations and the especially the villain, I have a tendency to forget to care about what he, what he wants and why. And, and, but that's really key because he's the one putting the monkey wrench in to my character's actions. So uh, then I have to go back and make sure I really have a solid grasp on, on that person as well. And so, you know, kind of through the process of writing and rewriting the first part of the book, eventually I will have a lot of the really foundational stuff figured out. And that, makes writing the later um, sections not easy, but, you know, easier um, than I'm more hashing out specifics of scenes instead of the big, big picture stuff for the most part. So, Mm. uh, you know, sometimes putting in the time just means putting in some thought on or or really sitting down and brainstorming or making lists of of things until something clicks. Um, And so I may not Mm -hmm. get any word count, but I... Well, if I have an epiphany, I'll feel like I've made progress. It's it's hard being a writer. You know, in a regular job, you have, like, a specific, more specific deliverables along the way a lot of times. And creative work, it can be a little bit frustrating. And even with that, so let's with with your creative work, you have um, published two um, romantic suspense novels. Mm-hmm. And people can go to your website, which is GwenHernandez.com. I'll have the links to that in the show page, and they can look at your books, which are um, the latest one is Blind Fury. Is that the latest one? Um, that's the first one. Blind Ambition um, came out in March. Okay. And so earlier we hinted, you said that you self-published the two fictions and you actually like it that way, the two fictions. What is it? <laughs> the two novels. <laughs> and then you, you like, you prefer it that way. And I know you said before you got the deal for the Scrivener for Dummies, you had been querying agents and everything like that. So, um, and what is what was your, why did you decide to uh, self-publish? And and I say this also with the same earlier when you were about to say um, the other two Scrivener books that had been um, released were not mainstream. They were self-published. Um, and I think that for for the most part, I think people, well, okay, I'm about to go on a soapbox. So let me just, what was your, um, what was your decision? What, what, what? Did you um, what influenced you to go that route of clearing? Okay. Um, I uh, initially, yeah, I was trying to get traditionally published for um, Blind Fury, and that was the book that had finaled in the big contest, and was getting a lot of attention from agents and editors. Um, 
And I was, so I had actually had a couple of revise and resubmit uh, letters, which, um, you know, is is a pretty good thing to have an agent or editor. They've read your full manuscript and they've come back and said, uh, they haven't said, I'm going to buy it, but it's kind of like the next best thing. Like, hey, if you do some revision, send it to me again. And here's, a, you know, and they'll actually give you a whole letter of pointers and, you know, um, what they did or didn't like or whatever. Um, and, and I had kind of seen the responses I was getting grow from the very beginning when it was just a no thank you form letter. And then like, a, well, this one's not for me, but send me your next project. And then now to starting to get requests for the full manuscript and then getting feedback and, and further encouragement to resubmit and things. So I was starting to feel like, you know, my skills had grown over the, the several I'd written. Um, this was my fourth book. Blind Fury was the fourth manuscript I'd written. And um, my thought process initially was I was going to use the money I, I got from the Scrivener for Dummies book to hire an editor to help me figure out what what Blind Fury needed to kind of push it to that next level so that it was good enough to be published. And um, I got distracted by writing Scrivener for Dummies and promoing and doing workshops and all that stuff for a little while, and I also got distracted trying to write a few other, few other books. Um, but when I finally decided to go back and um, get an editor for Blind Fury, I thought, you know, the, the world of self-publishing has really become um, a much more viable option. It was much more accepted. Um, a lot of people had already kind of paved that way um, for me. I knew quite a few people who were doing it. And ultimately what appealed to me about it the most was the level of control that it would give me. Um, I've always really enjoyed sort of being in charge of my little world, my destiny, if you will. Um, I like working for myself quite a bit, and I like being able to make – you know, every decision um, from, like, cover, the cover artist, what I'm going to hire, the editor I'm going to hire, which changes I'm going to make, what my cover is going to look like, what the book's going to be called, when it's going to come out, you know. <laughs> like, I get mm-hmm. to control everything. I get to set the pricing, all of that. And so, um, and then, you know, I'd been hearing a lot about people who were, you know, some of the things they didn't like about being traditionally published, no, they they didn't have any control over any of that unless they just kind of got lucky and they didn't have their rights. A lot of them were never going to get their rights back now that eBooks were a thing. Um, and I, I just decided I was willing to um, take control over the potential for, you know, bookstore sales and stuff like that. Um, I just wanted to try it. And because romantic suspense, still was not something that publishers were buying a lot of from new authors at the time. So even though I was getting this good feedback, I wasn't really that confident that I was going to get published in a print format. I mean, they were starting to, you know, Avon Impulse and those kinds of um, lines. They were doing digital first publication, but I was like, well, I can do that myself. Um, So I didn't necessarily feel like they had a lot to offer me. Um, which I have mm-hmm. friends who are published with them. Some of them love it, some don't. So it, it totally depends what you want. And if you don't want to be the one making all those decisions, then <laughs> you don't self-publish or be willing to pay a lot to let other people do it. But um, it just really, it just really works for me. And I think the timing was good because romantic suspense 
was um, selling well. It just, you know, wasn't getting picked up by publishers. So there was a, definitely an audience for it, and there's a voracious audience. Um, you know, there's readers like me who, before I was writing, will read several books a week or more, and you quickly run out of all your favorite major authors, you know, and you start looking for new ones. And um, so I have found an audience with those voracious readers, and I probably haven't sold as many books as I might have with a traditional publisher, um, but I'm making a lot more money selling them on my own. So, you know, it, it's a toss-up. But um, mm. so far I'm I'm enjoying being in charge, and I'm not making enough to be the equivalent of a full-time job again, but I'm I'm making money off my writing and I'm enjoying it. I'm building an audience and um, I'm really reluctant to ever give up that control. Like I keep thinking, well, maybe with my next series, I'll try to get it traditionally published. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, well, I'll have to well, reevaluate. <laughs> some, and I read in Publishers Weekly a couple weeks ago, I think it was also, I want to say it was a romance author just got a deal um, from someone, she had sold like 200,000 um, of her own stuff or whatever. Um, uh, she had stuff published mm-hmm. it. I forget what who she was, but um, so, and you mentioned that, and I think though, this is a lot of the things people kind of are curious about, so I'm going to ask you a candid question. You said with the money from the um, prisoner, you had planned to uh, hire an editor for the um, for the um, for your romance, romantic sense book. And so you say that, you know, right now you're kind of, you're doing well, or, you know, at least not necessarily full-time income. I think when people think of the, when we see someone with a Fort Scribner's contract or Fort Scribner's book, you feel like, oh, like you're curious, like you, would you be able to say, like, not necessarily how much your advance was, you think it's five figures, six figures, it's too personal, let me know, but I'm curious. Uh, four figures. <laughs> Um, you know, my, yeah, um, although I earned out pretty quickly and so I've been earning, um, royalties for, uh, I think I earned out within about six months. So, so I I guess I'm assuming, do your readers or listeners understand advances or you want me to explain real quick? Yeah, explain it for, well, we'll, yeah, go ahead and explain Okay, so really quick, um, I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just an advance against royalties earned. So Mm -hmm. you could, if you you didn't sell enough books to make the amount that you got in the advance, you don't have to pay back. You get to keep it, but, you know, they may not ever hire you again because you didn't really sell that well. But um, (laughs) so once you've sold enough books that the advance has been, you know, covered, then you start just earning royalties on each sale after that. now, in a tradi- in most traditional publishers, still only pay you every six months, and when they do that, it's for royalties from you know it's essentially like it takes like nine months to get that first <laughs> you know like royalty again or whatever, depending on how the cycle falls. Um, so it takes a long time to get those payments, and you only get paid twice a year. Um, so it's a nice little steady income, but you're not going to get rich on one book. I mean, you're not going to support mm-hmm. a family on one book. And um, I think that's a misconception a lot of non-writers have or maybe new writers. Um, 
you know, they see and they're like, wow, you're, that's a major, that's on bookshelves and like people have heard of for dummies and stuff. So you must be making a fortune. Like my neighbor was like, wow, you must be like, well, I mean, it's a little bit of money and it's definitely nice, but it was not, this is not a, I did not make, I'm not making a kill in here. So um, I've, I think I've actually made more now with my fiction than I have with for dummies. Um, but I still, I mean, I'm still selling all of them. So it, it just continues to go. I mean, royalties are an awesome thing that way because they just, mm-hmm. as long as something is, um, as long as it's still current enough to keep selling, you know, obviously if the, whoever wrote like, you know, Word 2000, he's probably not selling a lot of those, but I think he's selling a lot of Word 2010 or whatever, whatever the later mm-hmm. version is. So, um, hmm. You know, if if I never wrote another one of these and Scribner moved on and became totally different, obviously this book would would eventually quit selling altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, that reminds me of I interviewed one time um, when I was writing for a, a Greenwich newspaper. I interviewed um, Mary Higgins the Clark. They were at a, some type of book fair or something, and she mm-hmm. signed one of her books. And she, I asked, I think I asked her to write something inspirational about writing. And she wrote something like, oh, when you get discouraged or whatever, think royalty checks. <laughs> it does help. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely excited to be getting paid for my writing, and I'm excited that I'm, you know, it's it's not just pennies anymore, but uh, I have not reached – like if I were somebody who still worked full time and my household needed that money, I would still be working full time. Mhm, mhm. Um, and, I, I, and so, with your, so did you end up hiring the editor for um, your Man of Steel series? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I I made the decision if I was going to self-publish, I absolutely had to be competing directly with tradi- traditionally published books. I wanted a reader not to be able to tell the difference. Like if they didn't specifically hmm. look, I didn't want them to know. And um, so far, I think that's held up pretty well. I mean, I think readers are a little more savvy. A lot of them, they know, but maybe they care less. Um, but so yeah, I always hire an editor. I hire a um a content editor and I hire a uh copy editor as well. Plus I have, you know, like beta readers and things like that. I hire a professional cover artist and um Yeah. So I I try to have it go through you know, as professional a process as possible, which means I'm sinking a lot of my money into every book before I ever earn anything back on it. But um, so far it's paid off. And I think that that's the only way I'm willing to do it because I, I, I want to, I don't want to put out subpar quality. If if I was going to self publish, I wanted to feel like I wasn't doing it just because New York wouldn't take me. I was doing it because I could do it just as well as New York and, and maybe, you know, gamble that I would do better that way. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And and I I want to have you back when I have had a chance to read your um, two romantic suspense novels. Um, I, the last my last foray into romantic, uh, well, I don't even 
know if they were suspense, the Harlequin novels back in the day when I was eight years old, sneaking into my aunt's room to read her Harlequin collection. <laughs> so yeah. I've been away from it for a while. But <laughs> I would love to have you back about that. Yeah, great. And, uh, you know, um, it's fun because I didn't read romance until, you know, I, I had said I found romance was my thing after reading a couple books. And um, I always thought romance only meant Harlequin, um, which, you know, that definitely serves a need. But there's a whole different, there's a whole other side of romance that is not the, the short little quick bites with very uh, prescribed types of storylines. Um and that are, you know, and I have a lot of friends who write for Harlequin, and I definitely respect them. That's a tough, a tough gig, but it can be a good one. But um, that wasn't what I wanted to write, and it's not what I read most of the time. I tend to read the longer single title um, books that, you know, kind of do whatever they want, <laughs> if you will. I mean, there's still obviously within romance, right? Just if you read a mystery and they didn't solve the crime, you'd be mad just so the romance is the same way. If you read a romance and the couple didn't get together at the end, you'd be like, what? So, uh, you know, a lot of people think romance is very formulaic, but it's no more formulaic than any other genre of fiction. You know, thriller, they've got to stop the terrorist. Mystery, you've got to solve the crime. Romance, the couple has to get together. The story is the journey. How do they make it work when it looks impossible? You know, so mm. that's really the only thing that you have to satisfy with. I mean, there's obviously some reader expectations within any genre, but uh, that's kind of the one key. Mm. And it seems like you hint on that in your the uh, synopsis for Blind Theory, you have these two, the two paragraphs, and they each have a heading. And the first paragraph, the heading is, she's desperate to learn the truth. And then the next paragraph, the heading is, the truth is the one thing he can't give her. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know about mm-hmm. that. <laughs> the exact conflict that sets up. <laughs> uh, immediately. Yeah. And I I read the excerpt, I read one of the excerpts, and I mean, it's, if your writing in general is good. And I'm like, oh, it's just, you know, it's, it's good. Obviously, like you said, people think, oh, well, so how are people are just putting anything out there? And I struggle with that as far as um, even with the show. Like there are a lot of people who are self-publishing books, but I haven't reviewed any because if they haven't, you know, it's like, well, what vetting, the, the reason I think, as you said, you want to do it that way because you want there to be this, like, quality of, you know, okay, someone looked at it and said, okay, well, this sentence is kind of crazy. Like, I, I don't want to have to go through that, <laughs> you know, and people right. are sending stuff. Yeah, and I think there's still, you know, a lot of quality issues with, self-published books and it's it's really tough to kind of overcome that a little bit and I I mean even my I even have my own biases as far as that goes and I am like well that's dumb because I am one of those self-published people so it's it's funny how you know we've just spent so many years thinking traditional is like the only way to have a real quality book happen Um, and yet so many of the traditional authors I know are starting to self-publish their work um, because they're tired of dealing with all of the contract issues and things like that, and they want the control that they've never had. Um, so I think it's slowly changing, and I think as the market gets flooded, um, the people who are rising to the top are the ones 
that are producing quality work overall. Um, so, you know, readers are getting a little smarter about looking at samples and, um, you know, taking a chance but looking for quality. And, and that's where having, you know, everything up right down to the quality cover makes a difference. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the covers, you guys have to go to her website and check out the cover. I'm like, who is, who is this man? <laughs> where is he? <laughs> yeah, I know. I wish I knew. Um, yes, uh, I, I made a deliberate choice to go with bare chested covers um, because I'm trying to be very specific about what, what I'm writing. And so there's no mistake, this book will have some heat in it. And if that's not for you, then skip. You know what I mean? Because um, it's, again, reader expectations, right? If you really sat down and you look at all the covers, you start to realize how much the book cover gives you, how much information it gives you about the type of book inside, whether, especially like romance specifically, is there is this a high heat level book or is it a sweet romance where they might kiss or where maybe they they have sex, close the bedroom door so you don't see it, you know, versus very, very explicit, you know, and mine's somewhere in the middle, but it's definitely an open door and there's some heat there. So, um, I, you know, I'm trying to make that clear plus attract some attention. Um, but if you look at all the books in my also bought list on Amazon, we all have very similar covers and that's, Mm-hmm. deliberate trying to attract the same type of reader and the reader goes looking for those covers that tell them that's what they're going to get um, so if that ever changes my covers will change you said that you had um, voracious readers and, and so I wonder does that help a little bit with your promotion of the book or, uh, or, or what's your promotion strategy like are you buying ads places or <laughs> oh, I'm marketing is the one thing I'm not so good at. Um, I'm a very kind of laid back. Uh, I have a very laid back approach to marketing. Very minimal. Um, basically, I have my newsletter, which is just slowly building. Um, I don't because I only have two books in this series, and it's my only fiction series right now. Um, I don't feel like it's worth my money to spend a lot on advertising when I only have two books to send people to. Um, what I'd like to do is get my third book out by the end of the year. And then once I have that three-book series, it, I think it'll it'll be worth my time maybe to spend a little bit on advertising because I have a whole series to send people to. Um so a lot of it's just been very organic. It's been through um, my newsletter and, like, word of mouth and some Facebook parties with other author friends. And um, and then, you know, just getting onto the list early on with Amazon, like the hot new release list. Um, some of it's probably been a little bit of luck there. I, I do put my book out um, or, you know, like, when I send out my Scrivener newsletter, I don't promote my – fiction, but I have those books, the pictures of those books on the side. Um, You know, I always hope that the people who come to my site because they found me doing a Scrivener search, maybe a couple of them will be romance readers. And um, I think the also bought list on Amazon and some of the other retailers, Amazon is my number one uh, sales platform, but I, I do okay on Kobo as well. And, um, 
so I think a lot of that is just people finding me through when they look at other authors who write something similar and I happen to be in the list of books that other people bought. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not very aggressive at this time. I, I I would like to get more aggressive eventually. I just really don't think it's working right now for two books. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm kind of letting it grow organically and um, – Hopefully that's the right choice, but it works for me. That it, I'm comfortable with it, and that's kind of the most important thing for me. I like even with uh, with Scrivener. I just I like that my my newsletter list is very slow growth. Um, people find me, they're interested, they add me, and it's purely because they actually want to hear from me when I have news. And so um, I haven't I haven't bought their interest with a with a freebie or a promotion. So I know that there I, – I may not have as many people on my list as other people do, but I know that they're all, like, good followers, if that makes sense, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you um, – in the newsletter you're referring to, I know you have a blog as well, which I love. I mean, and I was going to ask you about your posting strategy and schedule. And I see that it's not like you post every day or every week, but the ones that you just were to go to her page and scroll through – you know, the recent posts for the last few months, they were all posts that I would read. Like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, this is interesting. This is. So I was <laughs> going to ask you about your uh, – Is that so is that the newsletter too? Um, so the newsletter is um, separate. Like, people have to subscribe. And for um, – basically what I do is I just send out a newsletter whenever I have something specific of interest. So for Scrivener, that's generally like, okay, my classes, my next round of classes are open for registration. Like I just sent one uh, a few, a couple weeks ago because I opened all of my fall classes. And so there are people who specifically want to know, let me know when your classes are you know, available for me to sign up. And so I'll send that out and I'll probably send out another one um you know, like a week before the class starts, like, hey, don't forget if you haven't signed up yet, that kind of thing. Um, so I try not to inundate people. I, I know that for me, I'm constantly, like, deleting newsletters and unsubscribing from things if they send me stuff too often. Um, for my fiction, obviously, uh, when I have a new release, I will send out a newsletter, and that, I think, really helps. I definitely notice a nice spike in sales that first, you know, week or so, um, and I think the newsletter helps a lot. I um, if I feel like I'm going too long without a release, I will send out kind of an interim newsletter, just like, hey, it's coming eventually. I'm getting there, I promise. And uh, what I did in February that actually got a really good response was um, let people know the book was coming soon. Um, and I sent it out for Valentine's Day. I'm like, just to hold you over, here's a little short story. It was like an 800 word, super short, super short romance. Um, uh, just to kind of remind people, oh, yeah, I like to read her stuff, you know. <laughs> and I got mm-hmm, their mm-hmm. back. They're like, I love that story. That was really cool. You should make it into a whole book. I'm like, oh, boy. No. <laughs> but um, they really liked it. So I've got to remember to do that again. Did I in, answer the question? <laughs> your, yes, yes. And but, so in your so your blog, the, it's just kind of like because oh. um, you're writing about you're visiting the Thoreau house, house and um, mm-hmm. your reading Walden now, and uh, there's other other things on the blog. So that's kind of like more like when you find something interesting, you just want to say in general. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, 
I keep saying I'm going to post a blog every week. I'm trying to be more consistent. I definitely want to post one every two weeks. I try. I shoot for like Wednesday, Thursday time frame, maybe, mainly just so I get it done. Um, I, I used to write three times a week, but that was before I was published and really involved in a lot of things, and I'm way too busy to do that now and come up with things to say that anybody would want to read. Um, as far as my approach, it's very... <laughs> It's very haphazard. It's really just anything that's kind of um, in my head that I that I want to talk about, or anything I've done recently that I thought people might want to hear more about. Um, my blog is more of a way to kind of let people know more about who I am. So those who are interested in, you know, getting to know the author on a more personal level, um, that's. And I also use the blog occasionally to share a Scrivener post. You know, I haven't done nearly as many lately just because I've covered all kind of the major topics um, that I wanted to talk about. And every once in a while something new will come up or somebody will ask me, I'll be like, that would be a great blog post, so I'll write about it. Um, But, yeah, most of my blog posts are, are a little bit more personal, either like my travels or my sightseeing or just something that's on my mind usually it'll be semi-motivational or whatever. Like, this is what I've been thinking about. Like, uh, you know, when I was telling you, I was thinking about how, like, following your passion often leads to something, you know, really interesting happening if you do it long enough. And I was thinking about, you know, that that I wrote down, that that might be a blog post for the next couple of weeks, you know. So mm. we'll see. If I, if I can figure out how to flesh that out into anything more than two sentences. <laughs> um, <laughs> I it, it mixes, like you said, your life. I think I read this in one of your posts that you use a stand-up desk. Mm-hmm. How, is, how, does, how, how, is that, how, how is that working? I see them, and I know that the research now that says we live longer if we use a stand-up, if we stand up more. Like, How is that working out for you? Um, it's good. It's uh what I have found is I don't do a lot of creative writing at the stand-up desk. I tend to do that in my favorite chair or at my couch, or if I venture out occasionally at the library or something. Um, but I, what I do is I try to do all of my non-creative work at my stand-up desk. Um, are you still there? Okay. <laughs> it got really quiet. Yep. Um, so so I, will, I will answer email. I will write blog posts. I don't, I don't consider blog post creative writing I, in terms of – I just mean fiction when I say that. But um, pretty much anything, it could be related to writing or not, I will do that at the stand-up desk. And, like, I, I do all my class lessons there and all of my, you know, answering class questions and recording the video screencasts and everything uh, up in my office. And then um, – but for whatever reason, when I'm sitting down trying to write the book – uh, I, I can't. I can't do it there. I don't know why. I, for some reason, standing up feels sort of temporary. Like I can't just dig in and get serious and creative standing up. So, um, so it is working out really well, uh, but not for my creative writing. Mm. Okay, that, that's so. good to hear because I experimented with it a little bit last week standing at my kitchen counter. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But um, one of the last things I want to touch on with you, you know, talk about your um, your your Men of Steel series, and um, it's gotten it's received great reviews on uh, Amazon. Like the people love it, 
And and even though you said you haven't been as aggressive with the the promotion of that in general, you um, are going to be a speaker at the Writers' Digest Conference in New York at the end of July. And that's another, like, major thing. So tell me a little (laughs) bit about how that came about. (laughs) That's another one of those interesting stories. Um, You know, almost all of the speaking stuff I do comes from being the Scrivener person. Um, And that's really been excellent for me. I do think that helps me promote my fiction as well, because every time I go to workshop, I take those books and I, um, you know, I use the opening of Blind Fury when I'm showing the sample up on, on, of Scrivener up on the screen. And I've had people say, oh, which book is that? I want to buy that one. You know, I'm like, great. (laughs) So I do take (laughs) full advantage of this. Um, The Writer's Digest thing came about because last spring I was uh, giving a Scrivener workshop at the Pen Writers Workshop in Pennsylvania, um, and I, I had just been invited to do that. And I had run into a lady there that was um, Nina Amir, who writes. Um, she has a bunch of books on how to blog a book and a couple others. Um, how to, she has a how to create a nonfiction proposal book. <laughs> um, and so I had started talking to her, and so we went to lunch together. And at lunch, we ran into. Um, Oh, I think his name's Phil Sexton off the top of my head. But he's basically like the head of the Writer's Digest publisher community. And mm-hmm. um, I, I'm, I know I'm messing up his title, but we all sat together at lunch because Writer's Digest published uh, at least one of her books. And she was, you know, so she knew him. So she introduced me and we started talking. He's like, oh, you should come down and speak at the Writer's Digest conference. And, you know, I'll follow up with you and, but it, it was like bad timing um, last year because the Romance Writers Conference, which I attend every year and I give workshops there as well, um, is always the week before the Writers Digest Conference. And so, you know, I'm like traveling for a whole week somewhere, some other state, whatever, and coming back. And and he got busy, and so I had I had noticed on LinkedIn earlier this year he got promoted up to like F and W Media something or other so he was like up another level and I just sent him a little hey congratulations not sure you remember me but I sat next to you last year her you know at the lunch and he's like hey I forgot to follow up but I really I really do want to have you come speak at the writer's digest conference are you available this year and I was like yes so um that's pretty much how that happened and um, since they're going to have me down, he's, I'm doing a Scrivener workshop, but then they also asked me to sit on a panel for self-published authors sort of talking about the pros and cons of self-published. So. Mm-hmm. And congratulations on that. And that's uh, Thank you. July 30th. Um, and what starts the 30th is like pre-event stuff. Right, and the 31st, you can go to my show page, I'll put you the link, or you can just go to writersdigestconference.com to get all mm-hmm. that uh, information. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the people on the self-published, the book that attend that self-publishing panel will um, definitely benefit from your um, experience, and I'm excited to check out uh, that work. In 2007, I actually, and so this is what we kind of were talking about with the traditional versus self-published in the Sigma. I mm-hmm. I had a, right now, I can say I self-published a book, but at the time, I I didn't realize it. So I don't know if you've ever heard of Publish America. 
Um, mm-hmm. you ever, have you ever heard of them? They were they were, I haven't. Out, they were out of um, Maryland. Um, now they're called something else, which is a whole different story. But anyway, they build themselves as a traditional royalty-paying publisher, um, but they're just more open to new authors. And uh, because I was um, impatient, I said, okay, this is this is good. You know, they gave me a, an advance of a dollar. That's good faith, you know. You're not paying to publish the book. We're not paying, you know. And so I got my, it was a book for teen girls. And, you know, as I started the promotion of it, you know, I started emailing blogs and this and this and that and trying to promote the book. And um, somebody responded and said, I'm sorry, we don't cover self-published authors. And I was like, what? I wrote back, I'm not self-published. I am the traditional royalty paying publisher. And then I realized, wait a minute. This is just, it's just, it's just, oh, another name. So um, I, I think it's really good that, you know, you are a model for people um, who can who want to self-publish and combine the elements of, um, you know, standard industry work, like with the editing, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, well, I think we just have to remind people that any other time you go into business for yourself, there's always going to be, money you have to put into it up front to make the business work. And, mm-hmm. you know, being an author is the same way. I mean, I, I've been spending money since the first year to go to conferences and take classes and um, buy, you know, professional books to help me learn the craft of writing. And there's always an investment. And I I just, I have to remind myself because we want to be like, well, I wrote a book. It should just, you know, I shouldn't have to actually spend any money, you know, but, well, okay, you don't have to, you can just throw it up on Amazon and, you know, have fun. But I think if you, if you want to, if you want people to take you seriously, I think you have to take yourself seriously and you have to treat yourself mm. as a professional or they will. So, um, I, you know, that's the approach I've been taking. <laughs> wow. Well, I am so uh, happy for your success. I think people need to follow your blog and you have a new scrivener class. <laughs> Um, that's coming uh, in the fall that's open mm-hmm. for people to register for. And I'm excited to, to follow you and read more of your work and, and have you back on Behind the Pros in the Future. Well, thank you. This has been fun. Before you go, my final question okay. is, what is your writing superpower? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> My writing superpower? Do you mean like what part of writing am I the best at? If you were going to save the world with your writing, what would you pull out of your superhero bag of tricks? Oh my gosh. Um I don't know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you finally stumped me. <laughs> my writing superpower. Uh I I I think I'm pretty good at dialogue. I don't know how to save the world. Um, you know, I guess I feel like I would. I I try to. Um, I feel like I'm pretty good at distilling things down to uh, kind of key points, and so I would probably be able to talk the bad guy out of whatever he was going to do and help him find himself and not want to destroy the world. I don't know. That's. <laughs> You you are the first guest to insert the bad guy as a character. I love it. 
<laughs> well, if the, I mean, if I've got to save the world, there has to be something, either a villain or, I mean, if it's an asteroid, there's probably nothing I can do anyway. I guess just write the asteroid on a new trajectory, but I don't know. <laughs> God, that's a hard one. Now I want to go hear what everybody else's superpower was. <laughs> yes, please go back and listen, and you all can listen well. com slash episodes. Awesome. Thank you so much, Gwen. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, this brings us to the end of episode 24 of Behind the Prose. Make sure that you have subscribed. I will be back. It will be back in less time than it took me to bring you episode 24. I have on deck recorded and 80% ready to go interviews for you with New York City writer in residence, that's what I call her, Susan Shapiro. She's a New York Times bestselling author and she's got a novel out, What's Never Said. I have an interview with Scott Hess, who's the author of the historical novel, The Butcher's Son, which I feel is going to be a movie and like Matt Damon's probably going to star in it because like I could see that. And also I talked to Sean Ennis, who has a collection of short stories called Chase Us. And I also have more from the Creative Nonfiction Conference. I have a feature episode featuring Denty Moore's presentation on Friday of the conference, as well as a compilation episode for panel discussions. Make sure that you are signed up on iTunes, that you subscribed, and if you listen, please give us a nod in the review section of iTunes. That would be much appreciated. Oh, as for the check-in this week, I'm back on my 10 sentences a day now that school has started. Try to work on that during the week, at least 10 sentences. And then on Sunday, this Sunday, I did write an essay, which I really have no idea where this essay would go. I didn't have a place in mind when I wrote it, but I just kind of had this idea. So I'll keep you posted about that. Please send me your successes. I will shout you out on BehindThePros.com and on our very next episode, episode 25. Can you believe it? We're almost a year in. And I thank you for rocking with me this past eight months. And you know what you gotta do now, right? Listen, learn, and write. Listen, learn, and write.